All right, we're coming on live. It's so good that everybody is here. We have a panel ready to discuss today. My name is Joe Irostic from Metro Praise International. If you're watching this live, please ask questions. We'll love to get to them as we're going through this discussion. We're going to be going now for a little bit over an hour. And as we are doing this, feel free to share if you care. What I think is amazing about what's going on right now is that I had just finished up pretty much almost a, a year and a half sermon series on the book of Ephesians. And I knew maybe a few months ago what the next sermon series was going to be. And that was going to be on worldview, understanding things from a Christian worldview, how we put on the Christian lenses and see the world. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has lenses they see things from. And I wanted to discuss how we see things from the Bible. Well, lo and behold, and I'm always kind of controversial, but lo and behold, this week with the passing of a pastor and one of my posts about suicide being a sin and a great indication that somebody is not going to heaven because they don't have an active relationship with God, um, that blew up and kind of, you know, put me in, in the sight of the mob. And I've been in front of it, leading it as a parade by God's grace. And so I'm just looking to make sure, guys, one of you can chat me and let me know that we're coming in good right now on our webinar chat. And so what we, we've been doing as a church is talking about these things behind closed doors. And so now what I think would be really cool is if I brought in some of the pastors and maybe one of our leaders and let you guys hear from us as a whole. Not It's not just one person saying uh, wild and crazy things. It's actually a church that believes these things. And we know we don't base our opinions on church history, but everybody's going to have a group that they kind of come into or have things in common with. We're Pentecostals. So today we're going to talk about the Pentecostal view of sanctification. We're going to talk about that and church discipline. And we're not ashamed of that. As a matter of fact, when it comes to sanctification, we really want people to embrace the Pentecostal finished work view of sanctification that was based on John Wesley and holiness. And when it comes to church discipline, as we see Ananias and Sapphira dying in church, we don't want to see judgment in church. Uh, we don't want to see pastors take their life in the pulpit, I mean, uh, in, in the church. We want to see the, the, the holiness of God church and discipline be there if it's not to guard it and keep it moving forward. So let, let me introduce some of our panelists, and then we'll get into the discussion, starting with vacation, and then we'll go to the plan. Let's go to the operator, the one in the control tower, the one, the only, Pastor Lauren Sienski, our administrator and uh, COO, Chief of Operations. Talk to us and share some thoughts about how this week play out. Yes. It's so good to be here. I love doing this stuff, and it's an honor to be beside such awesome men of God that are preachers of the truth. And uh, like Pastor Joe said, I am Lauren Sienski. I am the administrator of the church. I am the COO, as he called me. I direct a lot of the things that go on in the church, just make sure everything's flowing from the day-to-day -day operations. So I would like to share, I think the most shocking thing for me this week, as it started to play out, I saw the pastor that committed suicide before Pastor Joe even mentioned it. And my heart was just so grieved. And I think the thing that grieved me the most was the response from the people of God, 
because their response was so different than what I expected it to be. The same thing when Pastor Joe started sharing, the response of the people of God, the ones that are children of God are being just so silly. I mean, I was so caught off guard by seeing like, man, churches, people really think that sin is okay. People are willing to put their life on the line to defend the wicked and not back up a man and women of God who are saying like, no, this is wicked. Instead, they want to say you're too judgmental. So that has been the most shocking for me. So I feel it is our place right now to almost correct their theology and help them. Because in my life, I have lived as a Christian for a while now. And there was a time that I was living as a Christian that didn't know my identity. I didn't know that I could be free from sin. I continued in a rat race of sin and I'm just a sinner and all this stuff. And then I've lived victoriously also. I have lived a Christian knowing my identity and it is so much better understanding that I don't have to continue in a in a sin a sinful lifestyle that I don't have to continue going around the mountain and getting right and going again and I'm just broken no God made me whole I understand the complete work of Jesus Christ and that is what has kept me away from sin and and keeps me away from sin every day I understand that I have the victory and I am able to overcome the temptations I'm able to take depressing thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ I do not have to go the way that we have seen other Christians go. So that is what I'm hoping that other Christians really, really gain from this and that we could really uh, separate ourselves from the world because a lot of this stuff, we're just looking like the world right now. Those are my thoughts for now. Amen. Thank you. And I just want to welcome those on the live feed here, Jackie, my father, um, Julio, Berto. Just thank you guys. Share if you care. We're getting it out. Uh, yeah, we still have pastors sending us links doing con right now as I'm talking, but those who disagree don't want to come on live with us. And I offered them a fair debate. I, I said I would pay for their time. I even offered this to professionals in the mental health industry or the mental health field. They have not taken it up. These pastors here are a witness to that. Um, people can play the name game. One pastor just said, well, this is what Jack Hayford said. I, I don't care what Jack Hayford said. I care what the word of God said. There is an epidemic right now of sin in the church. And if preachers aren't saying it the way the Bible says it, I don't care how they say it. Uh, I'm not here to be against them. If Jack Hayford wants to come on this, he can. This is not my point is to pick fight with other pastors. My thing is, what does the word of God say about sin in the church? What does the word of God say about how we should handle these kind of issues? Um, and do me a favor, Jared, go to this pastor who just posted this article by Jack Hayford and give him the, look, the link from John Wesley on suicide on how, jo how John Wesley believed that the people who murdered themselves, should their bodies should be hung in the town squares so that it would discourage the people instead of this uh, exalting of this godless pity, this unsanctioned grace that gets the trend of suicide going more. If Jack Hayford and others, others are still complicit, and I haven't read the article, so please, I'm not against Jack Hayford. I'm just saying, I'm not, if, and if this person is sharing it as if it's a different perspective than mine, then I know it's wrong because mine is coming from the word of God. Suicide is an epidemic right now. And as we've seen just with Robin Williams, up 10% since that time. And guess what? Now it's going to keep increasing now that we see pastors doing it. And it's been up over 25% over the year, uh, over the uh, last decades. So that's a bunch of nonsense. Let's not fall for that. Um, let's go to Jose, Jose Riasco. 
He's in our 201. He's pre-deacon. Hopefully he'll be coming to deacon soon. But the reason why I wanted him to be here was because he has such a heart for, for God. He's a great preacher in our church. He's getting his master's degree right now in Bible. He already has his BA. Uh, Jose, what's it been like for you? You're not a pastor. You know, Jared's a pastor. I'm a pastor. And Lauren is. What's it been like for you to see some of the pastors' weak exegesis, weak arguments, cowardly spirit themselves? How do you see that from someone that's wanting to be a pastor? How does that affect you? It's both, I would say discouraging, but it's, it's, it's almost telltale. I think about that verse where it says like a water reflects someone's face, so somebody's life reflects them. Um, I, I might butcher the verse a little bit, but it's like, well, that's the way, reason the church is so jacked up. When, not, not, the, not our church, but that's the reason that so many so-called Christians are, are, are so beautifully broken, as we were talking about, man. It's because the pastors are, are not leading them with the word of God. But at the same time, it's encouraging, and, I, and I'm excited because I'm blessed to be here with you guys. Uh, I'm just honored to be here. And that you guys preach the word of God in boldness and in truth and in, and in love and grace. So then I'm able to now, and love, correct people who do these things and encourage Christians to live by the word of God. So it has been grieving, though, like Lauren said, the, the, the worst thing about it. I mean, it's sad for I thought about the, his kids and his family, how terrible that must be uh, for their dad to kill. So but it, it just grieved me, like like Lauren said, that to see people just e even coming at you like, dude, I'm like, dude, what are you guys upset about? He's just telling you guys the truth from the word of God. And really, people aren't questioning you. I think about when Moses says, you're not coming against me. You're coming against God. Amen. So when you question someone speaking a word, it's not that person you're really coming against. You're coming against the word of God. Amen. Amen. Go ahead, Jared. Talk to us, man. You've been with me on debates. So has Jose. Um, what do you think when um, our leaders don't have the power to rightly divide the word and to understand it in context? I mean, wouldn't these kind of weak arguments get us destroyed in debates and other subjects? Yeah, I, I the see, gospel, this thing. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I see it as being totally uh, inconsistent. Um, if that if that pastor had been caught in adultery, I think many people would be, uh, at the very least, uh, more more likely to call it a sin. Though, in in, in some circles, there's going to be like, oh, but we need to show grace. Oh, but we need to show grace. So so even then. Even if it was adultery, I, I suspect that some people would be uh, more willing to overlook it and probably more willing to have him back in the pulpit in six months. But um, nevertheless, it's inconsistent because uh, suicide is a sin demonstrably in Scripture. And I mean, we, we would have to uh, it's sad that we have to establish that among believers now, but we do. And so now a man who has sinned against his family, sinned against God, sinned against his congregation, we are pitying him. We are um, exalting him when in any other case, as with adultery, um, as with um, the pedophile bishop of the Catholic Church that you mentioned, as with the uh, gay pastor and his lover down in Atlanta, um, in, in all of these cases, these are people who are supposed to be elders in the church. They're supposed to represent Christ, and they're, they're to be held to an extremely high standard. And these, these uh, behaviors are not to be excused or justified whatsoever. Um, and so it's sad to see leaders in the church. It's like, man, who are we allowing uh, 
to, to be shepherding and teaching God's people? Why are we making such excuses to have low standards? You don't allow a surgeon uh, with medical malpractice to keep on performing surgeries on folks. Um, you don't allow uh, a mechanic who's known to do botched jobs again and again to keep working on your car. Why do we have such low standards for leaders in the body of Christ? It's, it's very uh, troublesome to me. Amen. Okay, so I'm looking at some of the comments here. You guys are going to keep up with it for me. Anna, yeah, she says she knew somebody that committed adultery with uh, in the church. And guess what? Leaders need to be exposed when they do that. The Bible's very clear about that. And we'll talk about that in my second part. So we're going to go into uh, sanctification right now. I'm going to do a little lesson. I'm going to time myself. I'm going to give 10 minutes to talk about what I believe is the biblical view of sanctification. And then we'll talk to the panel here and see if they can uh, answer some of the questions you guys are having, giving their thoughts. And once again, share if you care. Okay. So what we believe is that when we are saved, we are sanctified. Jesus said in John 3, 3, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Being born again, the spirit, it's by the Holy Spirit. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. I'm going to bomb a bunch of verses, and I'm going to go one through one passage, particularly in exegeted. I can defend all of my points through all of these scriptures, by the way, but I'm going to just bomb them, carpet bomb them now so you guys can have them for resources. But uh, I'm going to exegete one passage particularly. Now, we're born again spiritually. What happens? Now that you have purified yourselves, when you are born again, you have purified yourselves. That your word right there, cells, yourselves, is soul. You have purified your souls by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So what happens? You're born again, and then you are purified in your soul. That's exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and onward. Or do you not know that wrong doers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with other men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. I had one pastor on the post say, I'm still more like these men, these wicked men, than I'm not like them. That's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. That is what you were, past tense. This is who you are now because of what God has done. You were washed, so now you're washed. You were sanctified, now you're cleansed. The big word sanctified comes from the Old Testament, and it talks about being separated from sin and made unto God's purpose. You are prepared for God's purpose now. And so you, you were sanctified, you were washed, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So just to review, we're born again in our spirit by obeying the truth. We're purified in our souls. We're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified. All of those who are here that are Calvinists that believe you are sanctified at the moment of, of salvation, you also have to believe you are, you are sanctified. Uh, those who believe you are justified, rather, at the moment of salvation must also believe you are sanctified and also that you were washed. Now, let's continue on. The Bible then says, since we are born again, there's going to be a lifestyle that follows. First John 3, 7, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is righteous is just the one who is right is righteous. 
the one who does what is right is righteous, rather, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The devil's work is not to remain in your life. It's to be destroyed. Now watch this. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. They will no longer live unsanctified, unholy lives. Why? Because God's seed remains in them. Notice how we already heard that terminology in the Peter passage about seed. The seed is the word of God. Jesus taught us that the seed is planted through the word of God. That's how we're born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Notice that that is the same exact way that it's used here among John. John says, you have been born again. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed, God's word remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. They cannot keep that lifestyle. They have been sanctified, washed, and justified. Now, this is how we're supposed to know the difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. It's not just those who make a profession of faith because there can be false professions. It says, this is how we know who the children of God are, who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and their sister. The born-again lifestyle comes with the transformation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 and onward says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life. Notice this is no longer your way of life. It is your former way of life to put off your old self. There are not two selves in you. You either have an old one or a new one. You're going to heaven or you're going to hell. You're either a sinner or you're a saint. You take off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self. How is the new self created? Like a centaur, half man, half beast, half sinner, half saint, as John Calvin said, are you um, like spiritually blessed on the inside and then covered with a bunch of sin like manure? Is that how it is? No, you are created holy. Look, look at how it says, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. There are no excuses for the old self now. What happens if a Christian sins? The Bible says a Christian must repent of that sin and continue walking in the righteousness and holiness of God. We then see in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and onward, look at how it works. You're saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. No one here is saying we are saved by our own works. We're saying we're saved by God's grace and faith. But when we are then saved, we become God's handiwork created past tense from that moment in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So doing good works will come naturally, and that's evidence that we are children of God, just as it says in 1 John. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we're not waiting for death for the new creation to come. Death has come now because Jesus' uh, new life has come. Come now be Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Death is not our Savior. Jesus is. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are now a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. Now look at how it continues on. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is in the present. This is in the present right now. This is who we are. Track with this. How much righteousness did you have before Jesus took away your sins? You had zero righteousness. How much sin do you now have that Jesus has given you righteousness? None. Now, you may say about 1 John 
that it says if we say we're without sin, then we're lying. My friend, I'm not saying that I have been without sin or that I cannot sin. What I am saying is when I confess my sins, keep going. It says here, if we don't, if we deny that we've had sin, we the truth is not in us. But first John 1 9 after verse 8 says, if we confess our sins, I'm not claiming that I've never been without sin. And if I do sin even now as a Christian, I'm not saying that. I, I don't have to confess it. Like uh, Joseph Prince or Creflo Dollar or Andrew Womack says, we don't believe that. We stay in the tradition of the faith that a Christian can't sin, but that doesn't change my nature. My nature has been given to me by faith in Christ, and when I sin, I should repent. Now, if the question comes up about once saved, always saved, what do we say to the person? We came in by faith. We can leave by unbelief. Granted, they, talking about the Jews, were broken off because of unbelief, Romans 10, uh, Romans 11, 20, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off, and if they don't persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. So we came in by faith, we can leave by unbelief. The Jews were once believing, now they're unbelieving, they can come back to faith. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from how much unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. And then he puts it again, if you say you don't have sin or, or haven't sinned past tense, look at it, we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. So I can't say I've ever been without sin, but when now I come to Christ, I confess my sin. And then if I say, well, I've never really done that. Now that God's made me a new person, I've never been that sinner person before. That is a lie. I have to believe I've sinned, then believe I've been cleansed of all righteousness and never go back to saying I have not sinned. How much more clear could that be? Now, in my last few moments here, let me exegete a passage for you that is used quite frequently to prove that men still live in sin. Let's go to, let's go here to uh, Romans chapter 7. Let's go to Romans chapter 7, verses 13 and onward. Talking about the law cannot save from sin. Some people say that this passage of Romans 7 refers to the believer. And the idea that they have here is that they are sold under sin. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, Paul says, sold under sin. And since he's using this in the present tense, people think that is still how he sees himself. We're going to exegete this to chapter 8 and see how Paul literally sees himself. Now, listen to how he uses this example. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Does that sound like a Christian? You don't know what you're doing? Come on now. For what I will do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree that the law, that it is good. But now that it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me, for I know that in me there is nothing in my flesh, no good dwells, for to will is present within me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Listen to what he literally said. In the present, he's saying, 
I can't do anything good of myself. I am sold as a slave to sin. And I realize that when I'm convicted of what I ought not to do, I can't do the right thing. Now, do you think Paul in the present is saying that about himself as a Christian? Or do you think he's using the example in the present to show you what it was like when he was a sinner in the past? Because you would literally have to be saying that right now, Paul is saying he is carnal and he is a slave to sin. Jesus said, who the sun sets free is free indeed, that we're no longer slaves to sin. Paul literally rebuked the Corinthian church for being carnal. And then he says here that he has no idea how to perform what is good. Does that sound anything like a Christian? Of course not. What he is putting forth in the present, and that is what confuses people, is an actual example of what it felt like when he was a sinner. I'll prove it to you as we exegete it. For the good that I will do, I do not do. So you're saying Paul never does good. But the evil I will not do, that I practice. Are you telling me Paul is practicing sin in his life? The Bible says an elder must be blameless. He wrote those words. How in the world could Paul be an elder practicing sin? Now, if I do what I will not do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. And there you have the excuse of every so-called sinning saint. It's not me that does it, brother. It's just the sin within me. Does that sound like a Christian to you? Absolutely not. The only reason why this is in the present is because Paul is using it as a present example. I have even done that and using myself as an example in the present. But that doesn't mean I am at that moment the things I'm using as an example. And he continues on. I find then, now notice his conclusion. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He's literally saying, I am captive to sin. Do you honestly think that is a Christian? Now look at the end here. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from on this of death. See, in his example, he's brought you to the end. He has made you see that the law itself cannot save you because you'll keep going against the law. You can't even keep your own diet, let alone the things of God. So he's saying, look at how wretched I am. I can't even do these things of God. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now he gives the answer. And look at it. Even the title tells you it. Look at here what the title says. Sins, advantage in the law. So sins winning when the law uh, is, is convicting us, but we can't do anything about it then the law can't save us. We're only condemned under the law. And look at the next chapter heading here. Free from indwelling sin. He answers the question, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I find my, I, I, in my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So I see this contradiction between the flesh and my mind. Now what happens to his mind? Remember he said in, pre, in the previous verse, he was a slave to sin and trapped in his mind. Remember those terms, slave to sin, trapped in his mind. Verse 8, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has what? Made me free from the law of sin and death. Isn't that what he was saying here? He was bound to it. He was a slave to it. He had no good. He was sold as a slave to this law of sin and death. But now the law of the spirit has set him free. Verse three, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, where he was saying here, I am bound in this, the flesh the sin, what the flesh could not do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So why did Jesus take on flesh? So that he can condemn the power of sin in flesh for us, those for us who are sinners, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but to the spirit. So how do we show that we've really been born again? In correspondence to all those scriptures, just what Paul's saying here, we're not living up by that flesh now. We're living to the new nature, born again life by the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, what? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life in peace because the carnal mind is at enmity with God for it is not subject to the law of God nor can it be so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God everything he said in Romans 7 means you cannot please God but thanks be to God that Jesus rescues you and notice the sonship through the spirit is coming but now, but you are not in the flesh you're not in Romans 7 you are not a slave to sin, and the law does not have captivity over you. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Where in Romans 7 is there any inclination of the spirit of God dwelling in that man? There is no spirit of God dwelling in the man. It's the law versus his flesh, and he is condemned. The spirit is what brings life. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead to sin. Is dead because of sin, and that is true. We still have a fleshly body that must die because of the sins we committed in it. That's why we must be raised again. That's the blessed hope. We're perfect in our spiritual nature and our soul, but we're waiting for a perfect body. That's what Paul said we're longing for, to take off this earth suit and put on our heavenly body. But the spirit is life, so the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life, the same spirit that regenerated us because of righteousness. But if, the, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, now here's the promise and how it comes to its conclusion. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So you will receive the resurrection and never have to face temptation again. We as Christians will face temptation just like uh, Ephesians says, and as James says, it comes from the flesh. But the Christian is to count their flesh as crucified. That's why we today are not to live according to it, but I'm no more my flesh than I am my stomach. Those who belong, Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ have crucified its uh, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. My soul's not in it. 
I'm a human soul, a he or a she, right? You're a he or a she, but your flesh isn't it, and it must die. And so now you must count it crucified with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep and step with the Spirit. Now, you may be saying to yourself, Pastor, do you have any neat little graphs that can teach us what you just showed us in a real simple way? Absolutely. Here's my last few moments. Your body, soul, and spirit. Your body is your flesh, including your brain and five senses. Your soul is like your mind, will, and emotions. And your spirit is what gives you life. Now, when you're not born again, the Bible says you're dead. You're dead in your spiritual life, separated from God, according to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and onward. And you live by your flesh's passions and desires. Verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So this, what you're seeing here, deserves wrath. Now, what did Christ do as we heard about being born again? What happened? We now were born again, not only in our spirit, but in our soul. Some Christians teach that your soul, your soul is still unregenerate and is a part of your body, and that equals your flesh. Your flesh is literally your flesh, your body. They use the word purposely, soma and sarks in the Greek, to literally mean your flesh and body. When they talked about your soul, they used psyche, psyche in the Greek. That is not the same as your flesh, my friends. When it says in 1 Peter 1, it says, now you have purified your souls, yourselves. That's the Greek word, psyche. Then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, 11, the same book, same author, he says, dear, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which war against the soul. The sinful desires found in your flesh, your body, as we've learned before, that is what's warring against your soul. Your soul's not warring against your soul. There's not two yous on the inside of you. There's one you, my friend, and death is not your savior. You've already been born again now. All that death does is finish the curse on your body so your soul can be released and brought to heaven. Then you get a new body, as Paul said. Now, some people have said, well, does that now mean we can do whatever we want in our body, like some Gnostic heresy, because my soul is saved? No, the Bible says you will be judged according to what you have done in this body, and you are to count it as crucified and not live by the flesh, but live by the spirit. So what happens when a Christian lives by the flesh? They're going back to an old way of living. That is not who they are. It's just like as if a sinner does something good. That's not who they are. They're a sinner by nature doing a good work, but they can't be saved by that good work. Just like how a Christian does a bad work doesn't mean they're no longer a Christian. Remember, we come in and out of this thing through faith and unbelief. And so true Christians, when they sin, they're convicted. It's like a pebble in their shoe. They can't keep going on. But if they don't, the Bible says in Hebrews, it will grow to unbelief because it will continue to harden their heart, like the word multiple sclerosis. That's where it comes from, that if we continue in sin, sin hardens the heart of the person. And that's why it says in Hebrews chapter 10 verses, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12, see to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. And see that, as we've learned before, that, that sinful heart, it becomes hardened. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you talking to Christians, all non-Christians already have hard hearts. So it's talking to Christians so that none of you get a hard heart. Well, how would you get a hard heart? By continuing in sin, your heart will turn towards unbelief. And that's what breaks fellowship. 
the lack of remaining in Christ, the lack of faith. Remember, as we learned in Romans 11, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitful desires. Skeleruo, that's where we get the word in the medical field, sclerosis, like multiple sclerosis, the hardening, uh, sclerodemia, the hardening of the heart. This is a medical term, and it can happen gradually or it can happen quickly. Either way, we see that the continuing of sin leads to unbelief, and that's why we don't believe in once saved, always saved. And we see people committing suicide and living in wickedness as them deliberately keeping on sinning after they've received the knowledge of, the, of God. And the Bible says there's no more sacrifice for sin. So if you die in a state of continual sin, a hard heart separated from God, there's no sacrifice left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So my friend, do not, as the Bible say, says, insult the spirit of grace. So that is how Metro Praise teaches the message of sanctification. Your spiritual soul has been born again, and you are to count your flesh as crucified. You are not to identify with your sinful self and the way you used to live. And now as a Christian, you are not to make the excuse you have a flesh and you're slave to that flesh. You are to be redeemed and now have the power over that flesh to make the body a living sacrifice unto God. So be delivered from Romans chapter 7 and come into Romans chapter 8. Stop living as a sinner and start living as a saint. Believe you are who God said you are and that you can do what God said you can do. Thank you. I know I went a little bit longer, but Jared, how are we doing with the chats? And did that come through pretty clear? What do you think? Yeah, we're keeping up with the chats here. We had a fellow, Andrew Damiani. Um, he, he took the other point of view on Romans 7. He said that it was about trying to overcome sin in your own strength. I asked him a clarifying question. If it's specifically about the Christian pleasing God in their own strength or Paul as a Jew, for example, trying to please God in his own strength. And he says, I believe he could take it as both. The flesh is still the flesh, whether pre-conversion or after conversion. And that was his last comment there. I had a few follow-ups with him uh, on that. But nothing is really as far as questions or, or counterpoints thus far. Amen. So, Lauren, when we put up a post like we did last uh, night, or yesterday, that says, here's all these wicked men and the wicked thing they're doing, the wicked things these people are doing. And then a pastor writes back, we are all broken people in a broken land. I am more like these four men than unlike them. It is only God's goodness and glory that is to be magnified. There but for the grace of God I go. How do we correct the nonsense that's in there from a Christian perspective with the things we just learned? Yeah, when I read something like that or see something like that or hear it, the first thought that comes into my mind is what Bible is he reading? Because the Bible is very clear with all the verses that you just broke down uh, that we are not to live in our sin, that we are not like pedophiles. I, I mean, by the grace of God, I am so different than those four men, you know, like that. It should be our confession as Christians by the grace of God. I am not a pedophile. I do not have to be like a, a man that, that uh, was 
doing what he was doing, Bill Hybels, to women for 20 years and hiding it. Um, and the same thing with committing suicide. By the grace of God, I am saved. I am delivered. I am sanctified. I am justified. I am all of those things. So I think we, you made a good point the other day, and you kind of hit on it right now, too, is like, hey, you asked the question, if that pastor was living crucified to his flesh, would he have been able to commit suicide? No. If a pedophile who has those uh, wicked desires in his flesh, if he was living crucified to his flesh as a man of God, would he be able to do those things? No, he wouldn't. Same thing for you and I, by the grace of God, if we live crucified to our flesh, putting our evil desires on the altar and letting it burn up, we are not able to go down that road. So I think we just have to keep on pointing out these verses that are very clear in the Bible, crucify your flesh and live as the Bible tells you to live holy, blameless, and covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Amen. So without Christ, we're as wicked as all of those men. That is the truth. And that's how it should be said. Without Christ, we're all the worst of sinners. But that's not the man saying it. He's not saying I'm a sinner myself and I'm not born again. I'm just as bad as all of them. He's saying as a Christian, there is no difference now between me and them. So he doesn't believe in an actual transformation of nature in Christ. He must only look at salvation as something that's like a debt being paid. So imagine uh, I'm an overspender and I keep spending all this money and I get in debt on the credit card. Somebody pays off the debt on the credit card. But that doesn't change me at all. I'm just still a spender, right? So I keep getting into debt. They pay it off. It seems like that's how they look at salvation, that there's no actual change of the habit of now. But that's exactly opposite of everything that we have read. The entire purpose of the gospel is to bring a transformation. Uh, and, then, and then at this point, a lot of people say, judge not. And, uh, you know, even the, uh, even the Calvinists, like, like a Paul Washer say, when people say, judge not, he responds back, twist not the scripture, lest you be like saying. Founders is in a genuine nation that changes us. We're not we used to be. I'll go ahead and hit on that a little bit more, uh, Jose, and then we'll come back to Jared for some final thoughts on this, maybe some comments, and then we'll move on as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I hear, you know, when you hear that judge not, it's almost like, dude, come on. Like you're taking, like Jesus is judging right there by saying judge not. And, and then I just really think about uh, uh, Paul's when he, he says, aren't we supposed to judge uh, those in the church? So it's like, all right, you say you're a Christian by the word of God. I'm supposed to judge you. Sorry, brother. <laughs> Baby crying in the background. So as a Christian, we're supposed to judge each other by the That's word. Okay. And Paul and Jesus is just clearly just warning people like, hey, all right, if you're going to judge by that way, then I'm going to judge you that way. It's just a warning. He's not saying never judge anyone for anything. I mean, that's actually impossible. So, yeah. Amen. Sorry, brother, you're, you're breaking up there and it's muting you. Thanks for your time, man. We'll let you, I know you had some things to take care of your family. Keep joining with us uh, via the live feed, though. Appreciate you, Jose. 
wish we could have a better connection with him, but uh, and also he's got to take care of his baby. Go ahead, Jared. Uh, answer any of these questions. It looks like Andrew's asking, do we still believe we have a sin nature? Um, you know, maybe explain that a little bit more to some of these folks and help them understand our position, please. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Andrew's question in the chat, do you believe that that you still have a fallen nature as a believer, that the flesh has kind of this, this propensity to sin and uh, uh, to be opposed to God. We do teach that the believer has flesh. We do not diminish the, the sinfulness of the flesh. But as we read on in Romans 8, what we see here, uh, verses 12 to 13, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. You know, I would, I would stop right there. And I would say that though we have flesh, flesh does not rule us. It does not dominate us. Uh, we have no obligation. Whereas Prior to becoming a Christian, we were unspiritual, as Paul says, Romans 7, 14, unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So we did not have, to put it one way, the resources, the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome um, the desires, the cravings and thoughts of the flesh. Now, as a spirit-filled Christian, my flesh can crave all kinds of sin, and I can say no to it by the power of the Spirit each time. And that's why we believe that, as 1 Corinthians 10, 13 teaches, that God will provide a way out of any temptation. We, we are not um, to be dominated by our flesh any longer. And if a Christian is dominated by their flesh, it, it is the will. Ultimately, it is, it is their choice uh, to give way to their flesh, but they don't have to. Amen. So... This continual debate that we keep going back with people over is really not based in scripture. It's more based in their feelings. And it seems like, even like with the one pastor, he said, do you want your sins brought out, uh, your hidden sins? Well, I, I was, to be sassy, I'm trying to guard myself from being sassy. One of the sassy things I could have responded to him was, um, I'll say mine if you say yours, uh, because I don't actually have a problem sharing my sins. I do it all the time from the pulpit. And that's part of what we do is confess our sins one to another. Isn't that what accountability is? John Wesley and the Holy Clubs taught accountability, had many questions for them to examine each other's heart over so that they would remain in a pure heart. Uh, so it's almost like what he saw was a threat. It's actually what Christianity is supposed to be. It's like, dude, do you have hidden sins you don't want anybody to know about? Because that's not what I have. That kind of goes back to that broken mentality that everybody's broken, everybody's in a process of, you know, and this idea really makes people feel comfortable with their sin. What about being free from your sin? What about saying you're the masterpiece of God? What about saying Jesus started me at the finish line? The process is over. I'm the masterpiece. Whatever I do now is from glory to glory. Notice it's not from glory to gory story. It's from glory to glory to glory. The idea of continual repentance is looked at as immaturity in the kingdom of God. That's what Hebrews actually says, that the idea of continually repenting, not knowing how to discern good from evil, 
is actually in maturity. It's not something you should boast about that I'm continually uh, sinning and being forgiven. I'm continually sinning. The Bible actually says you should be boasting in Christ once and for all saving you from sin. So for an example, there was a day that I looked at porn and there was a day I never looked at it again. That was 96. You should have a testimony. Every man here should have a testimony of never looking at pornography again. And if God was faithful in that area, he'll be faithful in every other area. What area of our life has God given us to feed in and said, I don't have deliverance for you today? The Jesus, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. These are my disciples who know my word, and the truth will set them free. Look at what even Hebrews here says. 511. We have much more to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Here's the rebuke, and these are the pastors. You guys are the ones he's rebuking. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You don't even know the elementary truth here. This is the elementary truth. You need milk. You need to suckle again, not solid food from out back steakhouse. Now look at how he distinguishes anyone that's immature. It's not if you know the seven, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse or end times or all these deep theological things. No, it says anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. What makes you a spiritual babe is you don't know the teachings about righteousness. You're in folly. That's what you are. But solid food is for the mature. Who are the mature here? And that is the same word, teleos. It is for the perfect. Let me show it to you here that you can see that passage in, this, in, in the, um, the King James, Hebrews chapter 5 here in the King James. Let me put it up here to you so you guys can see it. It says, for everyone that is unskillful, the, but for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong milk belongeth to them that are of full age, even those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Good and evil. So are you mature? Are you holy in the Lord? Are you who God said you were supposed to be? because that's what you're supposed to do, okay? You're supposed to know good from evil, guys. Uh, you're supposed to know the righteous teachings of Christ. Anything you want to say about that, uh, Lauren, before we move on, uh, Pastor uh, Sam and Jackie, thanks for amening, and the rest of you that are here, keep asking questions. Go ahead, Lauren. Amen. That's so good. I wish sometimes that we can have our spiritual eyes on and just see who's really drinking on milk and eating steak, and I think we would be surprised. I think we would see a lot of um, you know, people, uh, a dear sister in our church comes to our, uh, comes to my heart, like a Rosa Mendez, like strong yeah. eating steak. I mean, this very, um, quiet to herself, but powerful woman of God, uh, very humble. And then you have these pe uh, pastors on stage preaching and they're still suckling on milk. So I just think it's time for Christians to wake up it's time for the church to wake up. And I'm so happy that all these things are happening at the same time. And if we are the only ones that have the boldness to speak it out, I know we're not the only ones. We have a lot of people yeah. who have in our back. But if we're here able to speak it out, then, dude, that's what we're going to do. We're going to stand on the word of God and we're going to be eating our steak and helping others to get some, too. Amen. 
Okay, let's go into the church disciplinary issue right now. I'm just going to, like I said, kind of carpet bomb a bunch of these things. And uh, hopefully I won't be as long as I was in the last portion here. But let me just give you some of these texts right now. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 20 says, But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So if somebody was to ask me, Joe, what would happen if your son was in ministry and committed suicide? Would you put up the picture? Absolutely. My son destroyed the temple of God. And according to this lifestyle, he's in hellfire right now. This is something we do without favoritism. Jesus loves us more than we could ever love the suicidal self-murderer's family. I'm not here, my friends, to put on padded gloves so that I protect from false um, um, from from false judgment, a family that has just had a, a pastor kill himself out of a wicked sin. I'm to teach them. I'm to show that family what that person did. I'm to warn the child now who is three times more likely to kill himself because his father killed himself. Get out of here, devil, with those lies. Like somehow we're a part of the problem. Look at how it's been increasing just since Robin Williams. Just ask yourself this. Over the last three or four years since Robin Williams, has the narrative been what I am preaching or what you, pastor, are preaching with that godless, unsanctioned pity and false grace? Our message is not the message, and it's gone up 10% since just Robin Williams. Why? Because people are living in a sense of, well, I can get away with this. Pastors can get away with it. They'll hold vigils for me. And then it's not just suicide. It's for sexual perversion. People say, well, we're all just sinners. He has sex. You know, maybe pedophile, the priest gets a little bit harder. But even then, everybody's just like, well, we're not perfect. We're not perfect. But the Bible said elders are supposed to be blameless. When we sin, we're not supposed to hide it. We're to confess it. I confess my sin to God, my wife, and my elders. They have the right to ask me of any sin at any time, at any time, even in this meeting. But they that sin publicly are to be rebuked publicly. I'm not naming off personal names, Mike, down the road. We're doing it with public figures. How much more so with the, with the people of God? How about this one, Isaiah chapter 63, or rather, uh, with the, uh, I believe it's Isaiah chapter, what, 63? To spare not, shout aloud. Which passage is that, my brother? Give that to me. Oh, which one is it? Oh, I just um, had Isaiah chapter. Which one? I said I'm looking it up, too. All right, spare not. Is, is it Isaiah 38? No, it's a 60s. Is it just Isaiah 60? No, Isaiah chapter. I'm going to go through them all right 50. now. 60. Isaiah 50. Which one? Isaiah 58, yes. cry aloud. Sorry, I had it wrong in my head. There we go. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Okay, so is it biblical to call out sin in the pulpit and to the people in a church? Absolutely. Jeremiah chapter 23, woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. These people are destroying the pastor of God. They are destroying the church of God. We should have a holy indignation. Do we love them? Do we pray for their repentance? Absolutely. But these people need to be called out. They have a voice. They have a platform, and it has to be confronted. Do you want others to be like them? 
The Bible says we should warn. The entire uh, first two chapters, or rather chapters two and three of Revelation, is Christ warning his church, rebuking them. Revelation chapter two and two, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people and have tested those who claim to be apostles, uh, but are not, and have found them false. You have uh, persevered and have endured hardships in my name, have not grown weary. Look how good they were, but yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Aren't there churches today that have forsaken? forsaken their first love, repent and do the things you did at first. Proverbs talks about correction being a good thing. We should not be afraid of correction. Let me ask you a question. If we were correcting people right now and it had to do with health, and I was saying, everybody, stop drinking poison. It's killing you. This guy's drinking poison. Don't do it. Everybody would say, that's obvious, Pastor. You better tell him. You better tell him. There's a guy on the podium here saying it's okay to drink strychnine. What am I supposed to say when a guy kills himself? By his behavior, he has now set a pattern. I'm supposed to show them that that is wicked and evil. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. So we should love the knowledge as God gives it. But whoever hates correction is stupid. According to the Bible, you are stupid if you hate correction. Another proverb that we see that exemplifies the things of God, and of course they pertain to the church, Proverbs 18, 2. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. How often do we see on these feeds just airing their opinion? No word of God, no sound doctrine, no logic. Our faith is not irrational. The word, the Logos was with God in the beginning and the Logos became flesh. In him are hidden all the mysteries of truth. In him are all knowledge. He is truth, my friends, and we are speaking the truth, love, knowledge. The Bible then also talks about in Titus, when he left him in Crete, to set in order the issues that were there. He said, there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. This is what I consider a lot of the pastors today, even in Christianity, meaningless talk. That's why, the, that's why they lose in the public sphere. They have no courage. They're cowards. They're deceiving with their little feel-good allegorical messages. And he says, especially those of the circumcised group. And I would say, especially those of the tight pants wearing group half kid especially those of the greasy grace group of the crossless christianity group now look at what he says in this context to titus they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that ought not they ought not to teach and and that for the sake of dishonest gain i think a lot of these pastors and organizations are afraid to lose 10 sackles in a shirt we saw how one group was going to ordain or allow homosexuals to work for their organization, the big humanitarian Christian group. And the moment people kick back, they change their mind. Just give it a few more years. When the people don't kick back, they'll do it again. Just like the Methodist church wanting to approve of abortion. This is the world that we live in. Now, Paul says one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. What does Paul say to that generality? Is it okay at time to make generalities? Yes, it is. He's not obviously everybody in Crete's a liar or a brute or a glutton. Titus himself is in Crete. But the point is, he's quoting like one of their prophets, like I would say one of their rappers, one of their poets. And he says, they even say of themselves, we're liars, we're beasts, we're lazy gluttons. So boop da boop da boop, you know, like in a rap song. And he goes, you know what? They're right. That is true. They're liars. They're brutes. They're gluttons. How much more should we look at the church in a general state and say they're backslidden? They've lost their first love. They are lukewarm. What does the Bible says? Therefore, rebuke them sharply. 
that they may be sound in faith and will no longer pay attention to their Jewishness or to what we would say the Christianness of today, the, the thumbs up Jesus that never sends anyone to hell or the mere human commands of people who reject the truth. My friends, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable. They're disobedient and unfit for every good work. You see, you don't see these people unfit, detestable, reprobate. Most of the world sees them smiling. Look at them. Look at the good they've done. But the Bible says because of these reasons, them going into false doctrine, into unholy living. Look at what the Bible calls them. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. Now, can God forgive them? Yes, but they must repent. And so now let me exegete a passage once again in the same format that we did before so that people can see not only do we carpet bomb, but we can also go into the passage and exegete it correctly. First Corinthians chapter five, verse one, Paul is responding to a letter that he's probably already been given, telling him a report of the church. And here he goes. It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So his father must have married again after his mother. And now this woman is not his mother. So it'd be like his stepmom. And now he's having sex with his stepmom. And you are proud. Why are they proud? They are proud because they are celebrating how gracious they really are. They're saying that they can allow a man to be in this sin and they can forgive him because grace is that good. I know it's hard to see in the context, but that's what we see in his rebuke as you go through. Because he corrects them and he says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship the man that was doing this? So by saying this, we're assuming they're doing the opposite. They're not mourning. They're celebrating. They're not kicking out. They're accepting. And why are they doing that? Because they have a greasy grace and unsanctified uh, forgiveness. It doesn't come through the cross. Forgiveness must come by repentance. Now, Paul says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit or I'm with you there in these letters that I'm sending you. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one doing this. So he's clear that he's passing a judgment, my friends. If you can't pass judgment, you can't pass a drive. If you can't have judgment, good judgment, you can't pass a driving test. If you don't have good judgment, you don't know how to hire a babysitter. Of course, we're to judge. The Bible says judge righteously. It's not that we don't judge. It's just that we don't judge as the Jewish people. When Jesus said, do not judge lest ye be judged in, in Matthew, what he was saying that for in the context of Matthew chapter six is that he was saying that we should not be like them. We shouldn't do things like the Jewish people. Chapter 7, rather, says don't judge them or you too will be judged. But I know I'm already being judged. The whole world's being judged. Why should this bother us? For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used against you. So, my friend, if I come up with another judgment outside of God's judgment, I better be ready to have a different judgment upon me than the judgment of God. So if I want to change up the scripture, then throw it on somebody and say, uh, if, you, if you don't wear glasses like me, you're not going to heaven. I better be ready on judgment day to face God changing the script, in other words. It doesn't say that we're not to help each other, because even in the context here, when it says 
Why do you look at a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? It's not like we just stop right there and go, well, I can never help you with the speck because I'm plank-eyed over here. No, it says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when they're all at this time as a plank in your eye? You hypocrite. Now look at what you're supposed to do. Take the plank out of your eye, then you can clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye. The point isn't we don't judge each other and help get specks out because my eye doctor has to judge my eyes, don't they? It's not that we don't judge each other. We don't do it by a different standard, a different measure. We do it by the measure of God. The Bible then he said, judge righteously. We are to judge righteously. And what is the righteous judgment? According to John chapter 27, chapter 20, chapter 27, verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but judge correctly. What is the righteous judgment? What is the judgment by the word of God? Okay, so was Paul out of bounds to judge these people? No, he was not out of bounds. He was following the scripture to judge and judge based on the word. So when you are assembled, and I'm with you in spirit, by this letter, in other words, and the power of Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, the very thing we were just talking about. You see how church discipline is tied into sanctification? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of judgment. Your boasting is not good. What were they boasting in? We can see this man in our church and still be forgiven because as much as he sins, he can be forgiven. So they put him on a gerbil wheel of repentance where there was no transformation. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? That's what makes dough rise. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new leaven batch as you really are. So be so apt as you are. Notice that act as you are. You're letting something in that's outside of who you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Sacrifice. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Not the one with unleavened bread with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he's saying, let us live out the Passover feast every day while we remove leaven, while we remove sin. Because that's what the Passover was supposed to remind you of, is God passing over you, passing over judgment, because the sin's been removed. A lamb has been sacrificed and yeast came out of your bread. What that means for the Christian is sin is out of your life. That's not who you are. And you're living as a Christian in sincerity and truth. And once again, if you do sin, you repent. Hang with me. I'm getting to the end of the exegesis here. Hopefully these guys are keeping up, uh, our panel's keeping up with your questions in case we're going too fast here. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy, the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. We sent this passage to somebody. And the pastor said, even Jesus didn't do this. Well, then you just said Jesus is a liar because Jesus is the author of the scripture. God have mercy on you for that mindset. Let the scripture speak to you and change you and show you how to live before you say Jesus is a liar. God forbid. But he clarifies, of course, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Of course, Jesus was around the sinful of the world. That's who needed the doctor, the sick. That's who we went to. So Paul is saying, I want you to avoid these people, but not the ones that are in the world. Otherwise, you would have to take a spaceship and go live on Mars. But I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. 
So ask yourself this question. When was the last time my church loved me so much that they wanted to remove the yeast out of our church so that we could be a holy church? When was the last time my church told me not to hang around supposed Christians who were sexually immoral, like sleeping around, greedy, not being generous, an idolater, putting things before God, slandering, drunkard, a swindler? When was the last time your church loved you enough to not let there be leaven in the church and warns you not to even eat with such people. Now he makes it even clearer about the judgment. What business is, is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, we're supposed to judge those inside. God will judge those outside. On judgment day, he'll take care of it on Armageddon. But we're now to take care of the church as his representatives expel, listen to what Paul said, expel the wicked person from among you. I have literally heard pastors tell me, Joe, you need to get out of Paul and spend more time in the Gospels. And I just heard a pastor say this today on the post when we brought this up, that Jesus didn't even live like this. My friends, Jesus is the author of the scriptures via the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit of Christ, the Bible says. We ought to have church discipline. When people live in repetitive, unrepentant sin, we discipline it. I have a, this brother... You know, put up a Jack Hayford article on church discipline. My friend, I've been doing church discipline in grace and peace, even with some of them that are here today. They can tell you they've been through it. I've been doing through it for years. We have 80% of our church in discipleship. I'll put our church's numbers against Jack Hayford's numbers any day, which, by the way, I'm not in a competition with him. I love him, right? But listen to me, my friends. We believe in accountability. We believe in having the church be disciplined. And guess what? That's why over 80% of our church is in discipleship. That's why 10% or more are right now called to ministry. See, we have the true fruit of, the, of, of God with us because we practice church discipline. And so if an elder does it, we try to do it privately. But if they continue in their sin, we rebuke it publicly. The same thing is with a member of the church. If they want to call themselves a Christian and live in sin, we'll do it privately. They want to now do it publicly and go on Facebook and keep living this way, then we're going to do it publicly. That's how church disciplines work. My book is free online at mpichurch.org. Go to blogs, read books online. You can download the PDF. I talk about the steps of restoration, the accountability, the forgiveness, how we restore, doing it gently, in love. These people here can testify of that. In Jesus' name, God is able. I literally have here, I wanted to make sure I counted, I have a 12-step process of restoration. Pastor Jared, how are we doing, baby? Uh, we're wonderful. No, no new questions right now. Um, somebody had a, well, somebody a while back had a question about uh, our view of sanctification. I pointed them to our blog article there, uh, spiritual growth based in entire uh, sanctification. So Andrew, you know, let us know if you, you got to take a look at that. Um, yeah, we're pretty caught up on things. Jackie had a question. She said, um, do you think Christians justify the need to continually sin because the Bible says that the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I never heard a teaching quite like that. That it, like, I think what she's saying is the idea that you could do any of these other things as long as you don't do this one thing. You could do any of these other things and, and be forgiven. I, I never heard it quite like that, particularly with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, can I say something? I've never heard that either, but it's neat that she brought that up. Thank you. Because I've been seeing it in our chat boxes, 
And even when I was talking to Pastor Troy of Raven, he's been hearing it lately. This is what it seems like has happened. When the people who are once saved, always saved, defend Christians living in sin, they say because nothing can separate us from God's love, we're in his hand, so forth and so on. That's not what we're saying. We're saying as a Christian in sin, and that doesn't take away God's love, it's unbelief. But then here's what they say. You'll know if a person's a false convert, if they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and that's their sin, then you know that they really weren't a Christian to begin with. And so what I think the hearers, and this is what we would say is a bad consequence, a, a consequence of bad doctrine. I think these hearers of the Paul Washers or the Baptist people are actually hearing them say, I'm safe then as long as I'm not committing that sin because I'm not a false convert. And actually, that's when I looked up Matt Slick's article on karma about suicide. That's not what he intended to say, but I could see how people would be saying that because on Matt Slick's article, the first thing out of his mouth is suicide is not the unpardonable sin. So the idea is I would know before I commit suicide if I was a true convert because I still would not be blaspheming Jesus. So I could be sure now if I kill myself, I'll go to heaven because now this is just a sin. And because that's just a sin, then all other sins can be forgiven too. But, but once again, I would know for sure that I was wrong if I had the one sin of rejecting or denying Christ. But you see, let's just look at that real quick. Please, let's make sure she's tracking with me. Jared, chat her, please, and say Joe's answering question or something, uh, please, so that she can see this. I want her uh, to get this because I, I've been seeing this as well. And I don't know if she's ever felt this way or, you know, or she's just because she's seen people talk like this. I'm with her. I'm, I'm seeing it happen. If this is you personally, I pray she's coming out of this uh, teaching. Because, listen, Titus 2.11 doesn't just say that grace of God appears to tell us not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says. Chapter, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, which obviously is not a Calvinist thing. That's a limited atonement issue for them. We believe in unlimited atonement. But even let's say a Baptist would agree with us. Yeah, it's, it's for everybody. But once you're saved, you're always saved no matter what you do in that sense. It doesn't affect your unbelief. But we say, yes, it does. But look at how it says, verse 12, grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of, our, uh, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Watch who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then, these then are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke. Those two things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. What's my point in reading this? My point is, is that you're supposed to be saying no to all sin. There's not supposed to be any part of you that says I'm cool with some wickedness because it's not the greatest wicked thing. The Bible actually taught us that doing these things like small, like, like foxes destroying the vine, these things like weeds in Jesus's parable can choke out your faith in Christ. And you'll find yourself in a place where you're not necessarily blaspheming the Holy Spirit 
But in all actuality, Jesus is no longer your Lord. He's not your Lord. He's not your boss. You're not submitting to his will, loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I always give the example of Samson as the backslider because people always want to ask, well, when do I know I've come to unbelief? The Bible says that Samson kept sinning. He was under a Nazarite vow. He was told not to have sex with uh, women of other cultures and nations. He did that. He wasn't supposed to touch a dead thing. He did that. He wasn't even supposed to drink grape juice or wine. He did that. And the last thing is he wasn't supposed to cut his hair. And so he's messing around with Delilah and he keeps, you know, breaking off the bounds, uh, the, the binding they put on him. And then eventually he sends, he cuts his hair, right? And then they come in and she says, Samson, they're here. And the Bible says he shook himself to get up as he did in times past. And he knew not that the spirit of the Lord had departed. So that, my friend, is the scary transition from belief to unbelief when the spirit of the Lord has departed from you and you know it not. Why? Because you've been deceived by sin's deceitfulness. The heart has become hard, skeleruo, over the constant unbelief. You've given in, and look at how it says it exactly this way, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. See, it starts as sin. Then it goes to unbelieving. Then it turns away from God. Encourage each other so that none of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original conviction firmly to the end. We have to hold it to the end in Jesus' name. And that's where we show the true calling upon our life. Yes, we believe in predestination, but it's for those who hold it to the end. Amen. Do Christ, does Christ know his sheep? Yes, he knows it from the end, but he is with us now, and we must be obedient to him now. Uh, Lauren, any thoughts? Yeah, I think sometimes when people hear you talk like this, you're a very passionate person. You can become intense, and um, a lot of times the people responding, they have no idea who you are. A lot of people that I have even respond to is like, I've asked them, how do you know Pastor Joe? Oh, I don't know him. All they're hearing is the way that you're speaking. And it's almost like they block out the the parts that we say, like the sinner can be forgiven if they repent. We're not just expelling everybody that sins. You know, there is restoration. There is forgiveness. They forget all that because they just hear like the, the correction. They hear the rebuke and they go off of that. So I just think it's important that we look at the Bible as a whole, all of us, and we take your words and see that there is a balance. It's not just rebuke. There is forgiveness, but it is about the person choosing what they want. I am in your church. I have seen people be disciplined. I've, I myself have had to go through a time of discipline and it was for my own good because then what is deceitful and if i continued in my way then yes the right thing to do is say hey get out and go get right and then come back you know so uh it's not just uh hell fire and damnation that we're talking about right now man there's grace there's forgiveness there's there's hope but man if if we are seeing wickedness we need to call it wicked if we are seeing pastors go astray we need to say hey you're going astray we need to tell them that there's a different way and we need to rebuke them publicly when their sin is made public you are a pedophile and you have been touching little boys and girls for a long time you need to be rebuked it is not it's not a bad thing to say hey you that is wicked it is wicked to hurt a child and if you do not get right with god before you die you are going 
going to hell. So like you said, in other times when you were talking, we see the warning signs. We know what the road looks like when someone's on their way to hell. And we can stand there and say, hey, this is the wrong way. This is the road that will lead you to destruction. Doesn't mean we want them to go that way, but it is love that will stand in their way and say, hey, go the other way. I know a different road that you could take to life in Jesus name. Thank you so much. You know, we name off these names quickly, but there are so many good preachers in the past and of today that really hold to this teaching. Uh, William Seymour believed in entire sanctification, the African-American founder of the Pentecostal movement in, in North America. Uh, John Wesley, uh, William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, uh, the early Pentecostals. This was always their discussion was, is it a two-step process or a one-step process at salvation? But they all believed in entire sanctification. That's why uh, they were such, they were known as holiness preachers. And yet these people had the reputation of being so full of joy. Uh, people like Lester Summerall and so forth, so full of joy. You know me as a joyous person. We believe in Christian liberty. We don't believe in legalism. Uh, even I was reading one of David Wilkerson's books, uh, the finished work. He wrote it at the end of his life. I believe it was his last book before he passed. Do you know uh, Jared David Wilkerson came into this teaching at the end of his life, and he said it was one of the most liberating things ever? He said he had always seen God and sanctification as an ongoing process, and that put more pressure on him. But when he saw it as a finished work that he could experience through the love of God, and that's why uh, John Wesley always focused his entire sanctification on the perfect love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect, The love of God is perfected in you, etc. Um, he said this was so free, he wished you know he could tell it to everybody. So I had just gotten that book, and it's just amazing when you go back and you look at these founders and how they were saying the same thing we are now, and they were full of joy. All of them, you know what they had in common? John Wesley, Booth, Seymour was discipleship, missions, all of these things. But you know what? They believed in the idea that you were who God said you were, that you could do what God said you could do. Jared, anything you want to uh, tap onto that? Because I know you love history as well. A few more things, you know, before we go here. Yeah, I didn't know that about David Wilkerson. I'm I'm uh, interested to see what what trajectory he would have been on if he had lived a little bit longer, um, you know, given that that new discovery. Because you know, uh, for all the great he's done, and and you know, certainly don't want to diminish that. You know, he 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 could be a bit legalistic by by some standards there. So I'm I'm really uh, surprised to hear that. Yeah, before you, before you, I'm sorry, hold that thought. Don't want to interrupt. I just want you to see it. Now, look, look at the cover. Look at the cover of the book. Can you read it and uh, say it for us, please? The cover, it is finished, finding lasting victory over sin. Yeah. It's amazing. Go ahead, brother. Keep going. Uh, well, I just wanted to uh, touch on um the the act of of suicide because we were talking a moment ago uh about as as long as somebody is still professing faith um then uh just as matt slick said even though they commit suicide they're still professing faith they're not renouncing jesus openly but it is the actions that reflect 
that kind of unbelief. And, and just to make a connection here, uh, I was kind of uh, chatting with somebody who's struggling with this. And I asked, do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe God can change you? Do you believe the cross is enough to, to forgive you? And he said yes to all of it. And I said back to him, killing yourself says the exact opposite. Killing yourself says you, that God can't change you. He's not strong enough. Your sin is too big. He can't sanctify you. He can't make you holy. And so it doesn't matter what you profess. And, and there's a saying that goes, not everyone who professes faith possesses faith. Uh, and so mere profession, uh, the Lord, Lord, uh, will only go so far in the, in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, that's what it says. They claim to know God. So this kind of knowing is not the showing of a true Christian. So there's, like you said, there's a profession, but there's not really a, well, how did you say it? Uh, um, not everyone who professes faith possesses faith. There you go. You made a profess and possess distinction there. What I'm saying is there's a difference between knowing and showing. If you really know, you will, if you really know God, you will show God. And that's how it says here. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. That's where, that's where the clear distinction is because these people are claiming to know him. And that's why Jesus said, they'll say, Lord, Lord, listen to what William Booth faced when he would talk about holiness. Um, William Booth said this about sanctification, and I think it's so funny because it's exactly what we face in our generation. Holiness to the Lord is to us a fundamental truth. It stands in the front rank of our doctrines. We inscribe it on our banners. Now Christians inscribe on their banners, no perfect people allowed. This is what the original Salvation Army founder said. We inscribe it, holiness to the Lord, on our banners. It is with us. It is with us in no shape or form an open, debatable question. We don't even debate this anymore. I don't care what anybody says. That's what he's saying. It is with us in no shape or form an open, debatable question as to whether God can sanctify holy or whether Jesus does save his people from their sins. In the estimation of the Salvation Army, that is settled for ever settled forever and i actually even have here a a book by william booth you know and when i was talking to some young guy on flying and he was like well we just you know because i was quoting some of these people and he's like we just go by the bible we just of course of course we go by the bible too my friend i mean what do you think i'm doing here today but i just thought it was funny because they were getting rocked by church history and they were saying that was confirmation bias. No, my friend, the Bible says that everything be confirmed by two or three witnesses. I want you to look at one of the only books that William Booth wrote himself. This is one of the only books. Now, there, there, there he doesn't look so happy. I don't know why they have a picture of him like that. Maybe back in the day they used to do that. But he was known to be a man of great joy and just great uh, peace to be around. Look at what William Booth says here in his book. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart free, a heart 
from sin set free. A heart that always feels the blood so freely split for, spilt for me is not that beautiful, but it goes on better still. A heart in every thought renewed and full of love divine, perfect and right, pure and good. He says, this is what we sing as salvation is. This is what we sing. So in his movement, he felt he had to write a book on the purity of heart because it was so important to him. And these were the songs he wanted to sing. Not a beautifully broken song. I'm beautifully broken in every single way. I'm beautifully broken every single day. My sins are strong. Jesus can't take them all away. One day I'll die and then I'll be set free. That's how they want to sing, right? But that's not the songs of salvation wanted to sing. Oh, praise. Oh, for my heart to praise my God, a heart free from sin. Now look at this part right here. He says, when we say that a man is pure in the religious sense, we mean that he is right and honest and true inside and out, that he not only professes, but practices. There's the, con uh, the contrast, profession with practice, but practices the things that have to do with his duty to God and man. So I say to all my friends out there, uh, you're too good for uh, William Booth, John Wesley, William Durham, Seymour. Uh, well, show me who you're listening to. <laughs> I want to see what uh, pastor you're listening to, okay? Because we all got to learn from each other. I go back to these men and I find such blessing. Just one more quote and then, and then I'll move on. But watch this. Sin is spoken of in the Bible as filthiness or defilement of the body, mind, or spirit. Purity in religion must mean, therefore, the absence of such filthy things as drunkenness. You know, he names off all these things pastors now want to have, right? In short, to be pure in soul, like literally when was the last time you heard a message like this? Literally the guy who killed himself, his sermon series was a hot mess. That was his sermon series, the time he killed himself, a hot mess. That was the name of his sermon series. Why not name your sermon series, how to be a pure soul? In short, to be pure in soul signifies deliverance from all and everything which the Lord shows you to be opposed to his holy will. It means that you not only possess the ability to live the kind of life that he desires, but you actually do live it. And then let me just show you another quote, if I could, uh, from uh, John Wesley. When John Wesley talked about holiness, Christian perfection, and so forth, uh, people would get so mad at him that they would they would get upset and, and listen to, uh, oh, I pushed the wrong thing here, sorry. They would get upset, and, and I love how he compares it because he says, literally, when I talk about Christian perfection, they, they consider it worse than if I was a, a, a heathen. Watch this right here. John Wesley, there is scarce any expression in Holy Writ and Holy Scripture which has given more offense than this. The word perfect is what many cannot bear, even though Jesus commanded be perfect. Therefore, as, as your heavenly father is perfect, be holy for I am holy, etc. But this word is what people cannot bear. The very sound of it as is, the very sound of it is an abomination to them. <laughs> is that not what we hear today and whoever preaches perfection as the phrase is that is asserts that it's obtainable in this life 
runs great hazard of being accounted by them worse than a heathen man or a publican. Do you not feel that way sometimes, Lauren, that literally us preaching this way, they're more angry with us than they are the ones sinning? Talk about that before. Yes, that is so funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's funny. Like as you're reading that, I'm like, that is exactly what we are going through right now. It's almost like they would have more mercy for you if you were the one sinning right now. Like if you were caught in this in this uh, wickedness, they would like exalt you more than you being the one preaching against it. It is so backwards and it's just ridiculous. So I'm happy that you will continue to speak the truth. And, you know, this beautifully broken stuff, you know, I know a lot of um, women really talk about it more. I obviously this guy was talking hot mess. It's just a different word words, I guess, of saying beautifully broken hot mess. But, you know, obviously we know people go through real things. People are dealing with real trials and troubles of life. And uh, maybe their bodies are going through something right now. And I think what they should hear out of this message is an encouragement. Hey, no matter what you're facing in this life, no matter if your body is like really hurting, no matter if you're losing someone you love, like be encouraged. The word of God is true and you can be strong uh, in your soul. You can be strong and alive in your spirit because the word of God is for you. So I pray that as people start continue to listen and even if they get a little angry and their, their feathers a little ruffled, I pray that they can start to hear the truth and transform their minds in Jesus name. We can't hear you, P. Joe. Sorry, I was muted. I was saying, sorry, guys, we've been going on for about 90 minutes, hour and a half. Thank you both for staying. All those in the chat box, uh, thank you for chatting. Thank you for watching us live. Those who come back and listen to this, remember, you can always find us on our podcast at iTunes, Metro Praise International. You can also download our app at Google or Apple under that same name. This will be out in a few moments. I'll be riding my bike or in a gym because I think the rain is still happening at double speed. So I listen to myself at double speed to see how we did. And I love having you guys with me. We're going to do this a lot more. It does take time. So pray for us, folks, that we all can give our life to this willingly, joyfully. Uh, Jared, once again, is there anything from the chats we need to address? And then I'll let you have the last word and uh, maybe close out in prayer. Um, nothing in the chats here, but I, I have a few thoughts and uh, I don't want it to turn into a whole other thing, but I, I, I'm thinking, does the shoe fit? I'm going to read a few texts and it was such a great point brought up that we are being railed against for, for pointing these things out. And there seems to be more grace for those who are actually doing these, these sinful actions. So Romans one thirty two says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue do, to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So there seems to be more of a, a, grace, more of an approval, an approving attitude toward the people doing these things than to those correcting the behavior. Then you have Jude 1.4, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. 
They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, their only sovereign and Lord. I bring these up uh, because we often think of like the worldly people out there, the talk show hosts and politicians who, are, who promote sin, they promote abortion, they promote LGBT stuff, or we think of those apostate um, liberal pastors, you know, like the emergent church and folks like that who are now uh, in favor of those things, but we are having folks who um, are saying that the grace of God, look, Jude 4, who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. Well, you know, well, yeah, he's, yeah, he sinned, but who are you to, who are you to judge? It's, you know, what about grace? What about grace? And I, I think that's what they're doing there. So it's like, it's a very subtle, insidious thing. And um, are, are we saying that people who have, ha have been at odds with us are in this camp of false teachers, the people who are blemishes at the love feast? I don't want to say that, but this is, this is the attitude I'm seeing, that we are excusing sin and, and, and being approving uh, to those who are actually doing this stuff. Got to unmute. Keep forgetting. Sorry. Uh, what a great day. What an amazing time in his word. Jared, would you please pray for the two situations we brought up? Number one, that all people would know who they are in Christ. And the second thing, that whoever is in the church, whether a leader or not, that is not living according to God's word, would be convicted and, you know, come to the fullness of what they're supposed to do. For the sake of Christ and his church, that he said is without spot and blemish, holy and pure. Amen. Yes, Lord, we lift up the body of Christ to you uh, around the world, and we pray for the truth of sanctification to set them free, Lord, that when they believed on Christ, you gave them a new heart and a new spirit. You took out their heart of stone and gave them a heart of flesh. You put your spirit within them and moved them to keep your laws and decrees we are not powerless, broken sinners. We are empowered saints of God. We are righteous. We are holy. We are not subject to the flesh. We are not dominated by the flesh. We are not like the world. Come on. We are not like the world. And, and, and Lord, I pray that you correct any false teaching that says we're no different and we shouldn't expect to be any different. We're a hot mess just like everybody else. Let that not be the confession of believers, and let it not be the confession of pastors and Christian leaders especially, Lord. We pray that you correct and get this doctrine out of the body of Christ, and we pray for leaders that do struggle, that suffer in silence, that they will uh, live accountable, open lives, walk in the light as you are in the light, receive healing, receive cleansing, and begin to believe the truth about what, who you say they are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. We're going to end our cast right now. Everybody have a great day.